good afternoon, uh, history lovers. Muddied but unbowed. Uh, welcome to the second uh, History Ireland Head School. I'm your Head School Master, Tommy Graham, editor of History Ireland. And I see there's only one complimentary copy left from the big pile I left there yesterday, so grab it quick. Now, this evening, or this afternoon rather, we're, we're going to be looking at the Bolshevik Revolution in the dustbin of history, question mark. So in the face of claims of the total triumph of neoliberal capitalism and a generation after the collapse of the Soviet Union, how should we mark the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution? Should it be consigned to the dustbin of history or can it be recycled? Now to uh, discuss this, we have uh, Professor John Horn, Trinity College. Uh, beside him, uh, Brian Hanley, now of the University of Edinburgh. And on my left, uh, Frank Barry, uh, also of Trinity College, he's the only economist I know who's prepared to come here to discuss this. And then finally, uh, on the far left there, Oliver Eagleton, a uh, playwright and uh, activist. Okay. Ah, uh, you brought your mouth. <laughs> now, John. John lectured me as an undergraduate in Trinity, so he's good at this sort of thing. Uh, I'm going to ask this, my, my usual opening question. What was it all about? You know, uh, contextualize what we're talking about here, John. I'll fix that here. Yes, if you could. Um, well, Tommy, if, if what you're asking is... Yeah. So if the question is, in order to <laughs> measure it against the dustbin of history, what was the Bolshevik Revolution I guess I'd have two or three really quick answers to that. Firstly, it was, it was a revolution, and it was part of a bigger ongoing revolution. So we have to think of the Bolshevik Revolution in the context of a larger revolutionary process. Uh, exactly 100 years ago, in August, uh, early September 1917, there was an attempted counter-revolution within the Russian Revolution that had begun in February. The, the Romanovs have been in power for 300 years. Russia is engaged in a devastating war effort in the Great War, and the economy is in deep trouble, and the Tsarist regime collapses. And out of that first revolution, the February Revolution, there emerges a whole constellation of different revolutionary forms. The Soviets, which you can imagine as kind of local self-government, a kind of reaction against the collapse of the state, the peasants simply take over the land. Nobody can do anything about that. Um, and a provisional government is set up. And that provisional government, which has quite wide support, its idea is, along with continuing the war, it'll hold a constituent assembly. There'll be universal suffrage, elections, and a parliament, a Western-style parliament, will be elected. Um, so that's the first answer, I would say. The Bolshevik Revolution is part of that revolutionary process. And the Bolsheviks really, they're only one element in contention in 1917, produce a political solution. In the autumn, as we know, in October, the old calendar, November, our calendar, they carry out really a, what's very close to being a military coup, almost a bloodless military coup in Moscow and in Petrograd, and they seize power. And on the basis of that, they install a new regime which is based on the Bolshevik party, a tightly organized kind of party, invented and imagined by Lenin some 15 years before. Now, lots of people and lots of historians have always said that this was just a kind of revolutionary land grab, as it were, by the Bolsheviks, based on very little other than naked power in those two cities. Not the case. 
There was a working class in Russia, small, but it existed. There was a revolutionary workers' movement, and the Bolsheviks were firmly anchored in that workers' movement. So they have a base for their power, but it's a minority base. And in fact, one of their first acts, the following uh, January 1918, is the Constituent Assembly, which finally meets. The Bolsheviks have a quarter of the vote, 23.4% of the vote. They abolish it. Western-style democracy out. And what replaces it, therefore, is nominally a regime elected through the Soviets, but the real stiffening, the real um, strength of that is the Bolshevik party. So I would say that the first thing the Bolshevik revolution is, is a kind of political answer. It produces a revolutionary, um, a, a, it, it, re it restructures the state in revolutionary Russia. John, just a clarification on yeah. that. Wasn't it the case though that the Soviets were actually running the country anyway at this stage? Yes, they were, but, but many historians when looking at the Soviets have really said that they were running it on a localized basis. So I think it's best to understand the Soviets as one of those things that happens in revolutions. You know, we saw it in the Arab Spring. It's a kind of reaction to the disintegration of the centralized state, the old Romanov state, the police state. And so it's kind of local democracy celebrating itself and trying to run itself. But you know, on a country, the scale of, the, of Russia, the, the future uh, Soviet Union, um, a, a, a more structured state arguably is needed. And that really is what the Bolshevik party provides it, it is a kind of dictatorial system through the facade, if you like, of the Soviets. So the first thing the Bolshevik Revolution is, is a political answer to the conundrum of the collapse of the state in the Russian Revolution of 1917. But of course, it's much more than that, because the communists, the Bolsheviks, they then call themselves the communists, they're Marxists. Now, of course, many people were Marxists, and since Marx and Engels had started writing in the 1840s, there had been a whole movement of Marxism as a philosophy, different Marxist movements across the world. The, the Russian communists were only one particular version of that, but they see themselves as operating in the name of Marxism, that's to say, a theory of world history, a kind of philosophy of world history. And this, I think, is my second answer as to what the Bolshevik Revolution was at a kind of social level. You see, it's a real conundrum, because in terms of classic Marxist theory, the workers' revolution should break out where the workers are a majority of society and where the society is the most industrialized. It should be in Germany or Britain or, 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 or America, the most advanced capitalist states. How can a, Russia, a, a, how can a, 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 a communist revolution break out in one of the more backward states? And it's Trotsky who brilliantly provides the solution with his theory of a permanent revolution. He says, look, the revolution is global. And it can break out anywhere, the point, the weakest link of the chain, he said. And provided it then spreads to the more advanced centers, the world revolution will come to the rescue of the point where it started first. And so there's this huge wave of enthusiasm amongst the Bolsheviks. They think the rest of the world is going to revolutionize, literally, within the next year or two. And it doesn't. And so the, the Bolsheviks are faced with this conundrum, a base based on the power of a small working class movement, 80% of the country is made of peasants. It's in the countryside doing its own thing. Um, how do they secure their base? And so it's a paradox because logically that revolution ought to have occurred as the final political expression of an economic and social revolution. In fact, it's an act of pure political willpower based on the collapse of the czarist regime. And so the Bolsheviks have to back build in the conditions of their own existence. And there's all the drama. And that's why my third conclusion is that as a revolutionary process, the Bolshevik Revolution doesn't just stop in 1917. 
They then have to revolutionize Russian society to fit their own image. And they tussle with that in the 1920s, but it's really in the 1930s that Stalin finally does that because he introduces the collectivization. The state owns all land, all industry, and runs the economy. It's a state-led command economy. That is the second revolution. And it's an old chestnut, you know, was Stalin the inevitable outcome of the Bolshevik revolution? I would say the semi-inevitable outcome of it. At any rate, that's the form that it took. But we have to recognize that even well, that, that second revolution occurred in the 1930s with the purges, with collectivization, with mass famine, with at least two to three million victims in the 1930s, that it created a new economic and social model. So the final thing I'd just say is, if you ask me to do a rapid evaluation, okay, was this Bolshevik revolution in its completed form, as it were, under Stalin in the 1930s, success or failure? Success? Success in this sense, that it had a huge influence across the world. Think the Chinese Revolution. Think anti-fascist movements in Ireland, in Europe. If in a kind of post-religious world we still need enchantment, we still need to believe in the future, then Marxism as such, and in particular the communist implementation of it, was a kind of re-enchantment of the world. It also gave the Soviet Union a command economy which allowed it to beat Nazi Germany in the Second World War. Econ economic historians vary on that point, but I'm not convinced that without Stalin's brutal uh, economic revolution, that second revolution, the Soviets would have been able to beat the Nazis, but they did. It also provided an export model uh, under Soviet power to Eastern Europe, which lasted for 45 years. Very considerable successes, but failures, that economic model proved unable to adapt, unable to produce a market economy internally, unable to satisfy the needs of the Soviet people. The dictatorship, which Lenin had introduced, as I've explained in October 1917, and which is reinforced by Stalin, is never really unpacked. It's never really dismantled through all the uh, Cold War um, years. And finally, I would say that the disenchantment of the communist world um, uh, was something which ultimately led to the demise of the uh, uh, communist regime in 1989. If I can, just one final very quick footnote. The, the notion of the, because it's at the heart of our debate this afternoon, does history have dustbins? Well, it's interesting, the phrase itself goes right back to the rhetoric of the Marxists and the communists. It was around in the 19th century more generally because once you've got a Darwinist idea of social evolution, then the idea that some regimes will be dodos, that they'll be the dead, the discards of history is already there. But boy, do the communists use it. So Marx already refers to the communist revolution as the grave diggers of the bourgeoisie, the grave of an entire class. Engels, in the 1880s, talks about communism as casting capitalism onto the ash bin of history. Trotsky uses the phrase in 1918 when he waves goodbye to the Mensheviks, one of the other socialist factions, and he says, go away with you. You have no function here. You belong in the dustbin of history. And irony of ironies, uh, the phrase is used again by Ronald Reagan in his speech to the House of Commons in 1982 when he decrees that um, the Soviet Union and communism have now been or are being consigned to the dustbin of history. As a historian, I don't see any dustbins. And a regime that lasted the entire lives of generations in the Soviet Union, I think, requires us to understand it. But it's absolutely a legitimate question to ask whether or not this black hole of the vanished Soviet Union and all of the detritus which continues to turn around it 
whether any of that is recyclable uh, uh, to solve our current problems or not. Okay, so before we bring Brian Hanley in, just to uh, remind people of the format here, and if you just come in, this is the History Iron Head School. We're looking at the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, do uh, enjoy the show, but remember, this is a school. You're, you're supposed to do a bit of work. I know you might be tired. Uh, do participate. If any questions, raise your hand. We have a radio mic here, and we'd like everyone to, to participate uh, in due course. Uh, now, Brian, I want to go to you, because how does this play out in Ireland? Because obviously the 1916 Rising has happened the year before. Uh, there is a crisis of imperialism here as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the key point. The context in Ireland is, perhaps surprisingly, the Bolshevik Revolution is popular in Ireland. There is a lot of enthusiasm for it, because in the first sense, it's seen as part of the collapse of the old imperial order. Russia is being pulled out of the war. This is going to weaken Britain. So Irish Republicans, for example, see the collapse of the Tsarist regime and the revolution in Russia, and the Bolsheviks' rhetoric about supporting anti-imperial movements and self-determination as very important. So people in Ireland are aware of the Bolshevik Revolution. And unlike, say, a decade later, when the Catholic Church is defined in many ways by anti-communism. That's not the case in 1917, 1918. People are a little bit more confused about what exactly the Bolsheviks stand for. They know they stand for one thing, that's get out of the war and down with imperialism, and that's popular. 10,000 people in Dublin in February 1918 rally at the Mansion House, and there's a range of speakers from the Labour and Republican movement Just, just give, me, give me that figure again, Brian. 10,000. Uh, in support of the Bolshevik in Revolution. The, Bolshevik Revolution. Right. the red flag is sung along with Aron Levine. Red flags are flown along with tricolours. And you've got people like Countess Markovich and also people like Tom Johnson of the Labour Party and Trade Union Congress. Johnson, who historically is presented very much as a moderate figure, um, he writes in February 1918 an article uh, entitled If the Bolsheviks Came to Ireland. And it essentially is arguing that we do need some form of Bolshevism in Ireland, and he talks about how the Soviets will be replicated in Ireland by the trades councils, by the agricultural co-ops, and by the local units of the Irish Republican Army. So there's a degree of inspiration, but part of that is because it's seen as an anti-imperial revolt. In 1918, December 1918, in Sinn Féin's election platform, they claim that the Russian Republic supports the ideals of the Irish Republic. Now, they did want recognition from Russia, and there's a whole other story there of the efforts of Gaul Aaron to connect with the Soviet Union, but that's, you know... Uh, another, it'll be, de it'll be dealt with the next yeah. issue of History Ireland. Uh, another day's work. <laughs> the second thing is that it changes the language of working-class protest in Ireland. November 1918, tailors in York Street in Dublin take over their premises, lock out their boss, and declare themselves a Soviet. Over the next three years, the term Soviet is used again and again in Limerick and in Kerry and in Cork and across Ireland to describe strikes and lockouts and land takeovers. Again, red flags, singing of the internationale, all these things are very much in vogue. And this, again, might surprise people, but certainly uh, April 1920, two-day general strike to demand the release of Republican hunger strikers. Actually successful, the British release those prisoners. But the Manchester Guardian is in Waterford, and they say it's hard not to trace a flavor of proletarian dictatorship about this city. It has been taken over by a local Soviet. They are in control. And that gives you a sense of how, whether or not these things are actually true in the same sense they are in Russia, people believe them to be true. And that's also true on the other side. People who are opposed to social change, people who are opposed to Irish independence, also sense the hand of the Bolsheviks. The British government during 1920 is very much concerned that the IRA and Sinn Féin are in some way in league with the Bolsheviks. Red Terror in Green is the name of a pamphlet published by the Irish Unionist Alliance, which is based on Secret Service documents, which does show some knowledge of connections between the two. 
But there is also then, at a local level, in Waterford, for example, where there's waves of strikes by agricultural labourers, one of the biggest factors in the Irish trade union movement in 1920-1921 is that the transport union, formerly based mainly in Dublin, becomes a nationwide organisation. And that organises over 60,000 farm labourers. There's bitter strikes in Kilkenny and Waterford, parts of Tipperary. The farmers, in reaction to those strikes, form an organisation called the White Guards. They're very aware of the Russian lesson as well. So both sides, in terms of class conflict and in terms of national conflict, see the backdrop all the time of this wave of revolution. And many people of a variety of political persuasions, from people in the labor movement to people in the Republican movement and so on, are inspired in different ways by the Bolsheviks. So it is significant in Irish politics. Okay, Frank, uh, I want to bring you in here just on the, the economics of this, right? Because John has already referred to the fact that the Russia, in a way, was the last place you'd expect the, a Marxist revolution to break out, given that it was like a, you know, a semi-feudal aristocratic society. So, like, what what options were there to tra transform the society? Because John has also mentioned, you know, his list of successes and failures, and one success is that they did manage to build this uh, industrialized economy. But do you, I mean, were there any other alternative options for them? Right. So. Let me again go back to Ireland and take you back to 1870. 100,000 landlords owned pretty much all the land of Ireland in 1870. 50 years later, it was a million and a half small tenant farmers who had take, taken the land, right? It was bought out by the British government at the barrel of a gun, right? The, la the Land League forced the British to buy out the farmers, then they lent, them, they lent the money to, to the farmers to, to, to repay the British government over time. Ultimately, in 1932, we defaulted on that debt. Finnefall said that's not genuinely our debt. But you, you had... So, so, we, so we burnt the bondholders in 1932. Uh, exactly, exactly, exactly we did. Now, so, so feudalism is, is an inefficient... Uh, means of organizing an economy. Now, the feudal landlords will never give up their land without a struggle. So what happened in 1917 is essentially the end of feudal Russia. Feudal Ireland had died you know, in the previous decades because the landlords were bought out of their land. So, and with, with a hell of a lot less violence in Ireland, but it will always be violent to take the land from the landlords. That's just a given, there's no way around that. But what happened in Ireland, of course, is the tenant farmers secured ownership of the land, and that essentially, you know, is a defining feature of modern Irish democracy since then. There are other ways of doing it. At the end of the Second World War, the Americans had taken over Southeast Asia with the defeat of Japan. They they abolished feudalism in Southeast Asia because they saw that feudalism in Southeast Asia had led to the rise of military dictatorships in Japan and elsewhere. So they essentially wiped out the aristocracy in Japan, in South Korea, in Taiwan, everywhere else. They re redistributed the land. So the redistribution of land is, is absolutely imperative to build a modern economy. But there are different ways of doing it. Now, what Stalin went on to do then in the Soviet Union was collectivize agriculture. And the small farmers, that's like, you know, if, if De Valera had been an, an awful lot more radical in the 1930s and had tried to collectivize agriculture here, he would have been saying to the tenant farmers who had just recently gained possession of their land, you now have to give that up and work for collective farms. And you can imagine Irish tenant farmers are not going not gonna to do that. So they would have been wiped out in Ireland the way Stalin 
wiped out the small tenant farmers in Russia who, were refu who refused to allow the collectivization of their land. And now let me take it up to a much more modern period, which is the end, essentially the end of Chinese communism. Mao died in 1976. So Mao had been in, in control of China for several decades and had tried to follow a kind of Stalinist type economy had generated no economic growth in decades. Now, sure, he built a satellite. He exploded an atom bomb, right, as the Soviet Union had done, ha as India had done, but at the cost of securing no economic development, right, per capita in China since the late 40s till the end of the 70s. He had famines in China and everything else based on this collectivized agriculture. How China transformed into what we see today, and whether you like it or not today, China is essentially a capitalist economy today, but it's ruled by a dictatorship that happens to call themselves a communist party, but there's nothing communist about China today. But how China transformed from that zero growth economy under Mao to the huge growth colossus that it has been under Deng Xiaoping, who took power in the late 1970s, is there was a famine breaking out in China when Deng first came to power in the late 70s, and the small farmers said, we're, going to, we're not going to just produce agriculture according to the plan. We're going to produce excess crops. We're going to grow crops that we... Uh, food crops rather than cash crops, which is what the plan said they should produce. They produced food crops. They knew they were breaking the law. They promised each other that if I go to jail, if the government sends me to jail, the rest of my community will look after my children in jail. They broke the law. They essentially returned to a kind of a market economy, producing cash crops for themselves to stave off famine. And Deng Xiaoping, who needed to secure popular support because he had essentially instig instigated a coup d'etat against the Gang of Four, he saw that this was successful and he said, ah, a market economy can work in ways that we hadn't realized before. And essentially, the Chinese agriculture moved from that collectivized state to something much more like a free market. And that example then later penetrated across the rest of the China, Chinese economy. So my main argument really is that command economy and the collectivized economy doesn't work because small farmers much prefer producing their own crops and selling them rather than being dictated to from Dublin or from Moscow or from Beijing or wherever else. But Frank, I mean, uh, th this thing of the discovery of the free market uh, it didn't just happen with China. I mean, the Bolsheviks did it in the 1920s with the, with the new economic policy. Right. Which was used to, to build up the, the the Russian economy, you know, after the, the the First World War collapse. So, you know, I'm just saying they 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 did demonstrate a certain flexibility, even that far back. Yeah, in the 20s, but then in the 30s, not under Stalin. Stalin rejected that. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. There was this intense debate in the middle 1920s um, under the so-called new economic policy, and the idea there was you, that you reinstate not just for agriculture, but as Frank's saying, for small businesses as well that you introduce um, a kind of a, a limited market economy and capitalism, and on that basis, through taxation, you then raise the money you need for your heavy duty, big industrialization. And for political reasons, Stalin opposes that and uses it to get rid of the moderate right and to, 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 to lead his much more radical economic revolution. As always with Stalin, economics was politics and politics was economics. Oliver, can I go to you finally here? Because um, John used the, the phrase um, enchantment so are you, are you still enchanted by the, the Bolshevik Revolution? 
Am I enchanted by the? Well, I think I'm certainly enchanted by the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, although, obviously, if you're trying to assess the contemporary relevance of any historical movement or any political uh, philosophy, um, it's only natural to look at its inheritors. Um, and I'm supremely disenchanted um, after spending a year in a sort of fringe Trotskyist um, sect, um, which to my mind, sort of tried to schematically apply the tactics and methods of Lenin and the Bolsheviks to the political struggle today, um, which is, I think, uh, a sort of revolutionary methodology that's found to be historically reductive and politically ineffective. Um, I mean, for one thing, if you look at Lenin's own writings in 1902, um, what is to be done, he sort of explicitly states that the democratic centralist uh, organizational model that the Bolshevik party operated under was born specifically out of the conditions can I, of, of- Can you just sorry. stop you there? I just I'll go to John Hart. John, give us a quick definition of democratic centralism because it's one of these phrases that gets tossed around. What does that mean? Well, what democratic centralism really means is that the center determines what democracy is, I think. And what that means concretely uh, in, in Lenin's case is two things. First of all, he believes that the, the party itself is the fundamental mechanism and that it should be a very tightly organized party, um, not a large kind of democratically organized party. And secondly, once the Bolsheviks have come to power, even after they've secured that first political revolution and they've won the civil war, I always think it's interesting, they take a self-denying ordinance. That's to say, they say to themselves, if I'm a minority, then I don't have the right to continue to exist. I must accept the majority position. Um, and the Bolshevik trade unions, for example, are abolished, um, even though, as, as I say, the civil war has been won. And so by the time of the mid-1920s and what we were just talking about, the opposition to, or the debate around the new e economic policy, Trotsky, for example, it comes out with this statement just as he's being persecuted, saying, the problem is whoever controls the party controls everything. And that's democratic Oliver. John, just on that point, though, given the conditions that Lenin was operating in in Tsarist Russia, right? I mean, wasn't democratic centralism the only show in town? I mean, if you're trying to seize power from this very oppressive you know, police state, sure. You could exactly argue that. But it's interesting to look at two counter positions in 1918. First of all, Karl Kautsky, who's the leading philosopher of, of German social democracy, a Marxist, he says, if you carry out um, a, a, a political revolution like this on the basis of a small minority in society, you're bound to end up with a dictatorship. Perhaps more importantly, Oliver, from your kind of perspective, and you would know this better than I do, what Rosa Luxemburg writes in 1918. Rosa Luxemburg is just as radical as Lenin, but she's in the German party, and her assumption is that the revolution in Germany will be everybody or 90% of society, and you can have a party which will express the whole of the German proletariat's will. And she looks at Lenin and says, the revolution that you're carrying out in Russia is bound to end up in crushing the opposition and then leading to dictatorship. And she comes up with the absolutely memorable expression, democracy is only and always and exclusively democracy for the person who thinks differently. Right. And that's what the Bolsheviks couldn't, in those conditions, perhaps, allow themselves to do. Sorry, Oliver, you want to continue there? Indeed, yeah. yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I think the democratic centralist model, as Lenin conceived it, was a tight-knit group of theoreticians who would form the leading cater of the party, um, but and who would be essentially the political vehicle for a mass movement. I don't think that uh, the Bolshevik party was a sort of um, 
niche and exclusionary organization. I think that Lenin's idea was that because you had to operate in secret under the repressive conditions of Tsarist Russia, it was necessary to have an incredibly small collective of, uh, of educated and mostly bourgeois Marxist thinkers who would then uh, be able to disseminate to, to the broader masses um, their sort of revolutionary material and, and gain a kind of uh, hegemony through their agitational uh, work. But um, I think that, uh, that this model in, in the present day, clearly, there's, there's something still to be said for having a, a party which acts as a sort of political vehicle to translate um, sort of, you know, disenchantment, whatever it may be, into a, a positive political program. I don't necessarily think that today the, the that kind of tight knit structure will will work or will be effective as a political instrument. But I think that what you have to realize about uh, the Bolshevik Party's position was that they were operating in. Um, in what was in one way as a supremely hopeless, um, the sort of evolutionist approach to revolution whereby it had to pass through its bourgeois democratic phase before you could proceed to a, a dictatorship of the proletariat. That simply didn't work in Russia because you had bourgeois parties or you know petty bourgeois socialist parties that were allied to people directly looking to reestablish the monarchy or to instate a military dictator. And I think that uh, Lenin was absolutely right to distrust Kerensky's regime um, when it was established in, in, uh, in this unique situation where you couldn't necessarily adopt this evolutionist approach. Um, the response was not to sort of throw out the Marxist canon and say that now these sort of theoretical models no longer have any relevance. Um, I mean, that's the response that a lot of people come up with today when you ask them about the relevance of Marxist thought, you know, the grand narratives of history of Marxism. But he rather tried to rework Marxist theory, as it were, from the inside, so that theory came to its culmination um, and consummation in practice um, and in the, the, you know, the political praxis of the Bolshevik party. Um, and I think that that's something that today we can all really learn from, especially when we're now again confronting a, a political situation where there's no organized self-conscious proletariat um, which can seize power. You know, there needs to be a, a similar um, and I think distinctly Leninist reworking of uh, progressive thought to, to meet the needs of the situation. Brian, you want to come in? Yeah, I think you need to understand though the context in 1918, 1919 for some of the decisions that the Bolsheviks make. Um, it isn't the case that the world looks on in 1918 and says, oh, they've got a wonderful experiment over there in working class power and Soviets and all the rest. Let's see if it works out after a few years. It probably won't because capitalism is always better. There's an immediate figure, the attempt made to crush the Russian Revolution. I mean, see, as well as World War XX, you look at some of the casualty figures of Odessa and Ireland, these guys doing in Russia, because the British army were in Russia in 1920, as were the American army, as were the Japanese army, as were a host of European armies that were determined to crush the revolution and to support the whites. And what were the whites attempting to do? Establish a liberal democracy in which everybody would have a, f a fair say. The white army uh, in the Ukraine slaughtered perhaps 100,000 Jews. I mean, there's, you have this vicious reaction against the idea. And it's not just the idea of the Bolsheviks, because as I say, across Europe, whether people know the ins and outs of Bolshevik policy or not, what seems to be happening in Russia is that there is a government for the first time that claims to be a government of the working class. And that's why in Turin, and in Glasgow and in a host of places across Europe, 
people are inspired by that. And that is why someone like Winston Churchill, who most people would consider a Democrat, in 1927 goes to Italy and says to Mussolini, if I had been an Italian, I would have worn the black shirt with you in your struggle against the bestial appetites of Leninism. It's not the case that it's a choice between necessarily 21st century liberal democracy and Bolshevism. Actually, what was there was an attempt to restore in Russia, you know, autocratic, vicious autocratic, capitalism or even monarchism. So some of the decisions the Bolsheviks make are in the context of a savage civil war in which they're fighting for survival and which hundreds of thousands of people across Europe have a stake in. So, question there, Goretti, you want to come in there? Yeah. Just by the way, just say, if, if you have any questions, just put your hand up now because we're, we're going to open this to the floor now if anyone has a question or a point to make. Okay. Uh, yeah, actually, this is a comment as much as a question. Um, I'm kind of surprised by the fact that, first of all, that the people who actually started the revolution, uh, the women who uh, took to the streets on International Women's Day in 1917 and started the revolution haven't been mentioned at all. I'm also really surprised by the fact that the extent to which the revolution was a festival of the oppressed, when for example, women got the vote for the first time um, in history, uh, where a woman, um, the first, uh, just ahead of Countess Markovitch, uh, the first women ministers, um, were established. Um, they, there are I issues in relation to women. There was things like, uh, you know, childcare set up immediately, which we still don't have in Ireland today. Um, there was the fact that uh, there was maternity leave, etc., um, instigated and not instigated and equal pay and not equal pay instigated. You know, up at the top here with nobody able to carry it through, but equal pay brought in in factories and workplaces where they could it could actually happen because the people you know, who brought it in were also the people who were uh, implementing it. Just one small thing in terms of democracy, I absolutely agree with what everybody's saying about, John calls it an, a second revolution, I call it a counter-revolution. Um, when uh, Stalin took over, a lot of those gains went backwards. But actually one of the ways in which, to back up what Brian was saying about the difficulties that the Bolsheviks had um, uh, in the years of the Civil War, etc., that there was still an element of democracy as in relation to abortion, an issue which we talk about a lot still today. It was 1920, it was Bolshevik policy to legalize abortion and to have abor free, legal, safe abortion, again, what we're still fighting for in Ireland today. It was 1920 before it was actually legalized. And the reason was, was because the Bolsheviks were still trying to get it through Soviets. So it wasn't the case that, you know, that there were just decrees being made. There was, all, the, those decrees were based on some element of democracy. Yes, a democracy, like Brian said, that's been, that was absolutely slashed by the numbers who were killed in the Civil War, etc. But nonetheless, there was still an attempt up until, I don't know, early 20s anyway, um, to keep some element of democracy. But I think it's really, really important. I could go on forever, but I mean, if you look at what, for example, Muslim women um, in the Transcaucasus, the extent to which they were taking off the veil, they were actually holding uh, Muslim women's conferences where they were saying, um, you know, we want to get rid of polygamy, uh, we want to get rid of uh, child marriage. They did all of those things, and they were able to do all of those things because of the revolution again, like I say, you know, swept away by Stalin, and, uh, but, but it's really important to hold to the extent to which, you know, a revolution can be a real festival of the oppressed, and it certainly was uh, for the women of Russia, who I remind you again, started the bloody revolution. Sorry. Yeah, exactly. Well, the revolution was, it was born on International Women's Day, and Lenin was, uh, was the first, the leader of the first government in the world to establish a department for the emancipation of women. 
um, and, and redefined uh, domestic violence as a counter-revolutionary offense. So yes, kudos to Goretti for raising that point. Sure. Just, no, no, hold on a second, just wait, wait to get the mic. Sorry, just a quick clarification. Uh, it was universal suffrage in New Zealand in 1893, so. And where? Sorry, John, do it, can you just, uh, just say, John, back, can you just answer on the, the, the question of women's rights, which Greta raised there? Because, I mean, over a whole spectrum, there was major advances made on, on social issues within the, yeah. you know, post-revolution. No, I, that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I like the, the, the phrase, the festival of the, the oppressed, and you know, I made the point that when we think about the Bolshevik revolution, it occurred within a larger revolutionary process that had been going on since uh, March 1917 through the Soviets, certainly through the women's organizations, we didn't talk about artists so far, but the, the avant-garde artists, um, Malevich and so on, were absolutely part of the, um, this, this, this festival of the, of the oppressed. And it, I think it's really the second half of the 1920s, is that second revolution, or counter-revolution, whatever you want to call it, under, under Stalin, which rolls all of those back, including many of the actual rights for, um, uh, for women. For example, um, the restriction on the right to abortion, which comes in the 1930s in the interests of population increase and so on. In all those ways, that's why I say, I mean, we, I think, really do un have to understand the, the Bolsheviks within this revolutionary process, which is re-enchanting the world, which is giving power to people who've not had it before, and yet they're caught in this, in this dilemma to a certain degree of their own making. And I accept all that Brian says about the, the pressures from the civil war and intervention and so on, but this comes after the Bolsheviks have already decided on a particular revolutionary course, which has excluded the Constituent Assembly, which has eliminated um, the social revolutionaries who had 40% of the vote in that assembly. There were many other components of that revolution. Not all of the women, perhaps not very many of them, were in fact Bolsheviks. And so we have to understand the Bolshevik revolution, this reconstruction of an authoritarian state, working its way through this festival of the oppressed. Okay. Just wondering, what, so why then in Britain and in Germany and France, where the conditions were surely there for a proletarian fight back, why were the conditions less fertile? Or why? Do you, want to, do you want to come back on that, John? Or? I, I think partly because the conditions in all of those countries were very different. So in the in the Bolshevik imagining and those of Bolshevik supporters around the around the world. The idea of the permanent revolution means that exactly this, this should have occurred immediately. But in fact, those working class movements, those socialist revolutionaries and reformists had other paths which they, which they took. So the German revolution of late 1918, early 1919 actually splits and it's only a minority which supports the kind of Bolshevik position. And actually what it supports is exactly what Brian described so well, the Soviets for, for about three to four years what people saw was the Soviets. They saw this festival of the oppressed, the self-organized of the oppressed. What they didn't see was the Bolshevik party through that. But in any event, the majority of the German workers' movement um, uh, supported the new democratic, the liberal democratic republic of Weimar. And the same is true in both Britain and France. There were very strong elements 
um, radical elements in the working class movement who were fascinated by Russia, understood, misunderstood what was going on in, in, in Russia. But at the end of the day, they were minority uh, currents. And the conditions were such in Britain and France that possibilities for reform, for evolution were there. The society, despite the impact of the Great War, was not so terribly polarized as it had become within Tsarist Russia. Could I just add a comment there, just an answer to what you say there? Is it not a, a sense that uh, Marxists the world over uh, believe their own propaganda? I mean, you talked at the very start, John, about terms like the grave diggers of capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. So was, this, was there a kind of a complacent, uh, deterministic assumption that we all just sit back and it's all going to happen, fall into place? Uh, there certainly could be, and of course we shouldn't forget the incredible blow which the, um, the, the Great Depression, the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression wrought across the capitalist world. And so there was a decade there when capitalism really did seem to be shaky, much shakier even than it seemed after the 2007 banking crash. But in that period, um, firstly, uh, the, the, I think three things. Firstly, yes, the kind of assumption that automatically the revolution would occur was, was the way that some people thought. Secondly, the revolutionary option was somehow captured by the Bolsheviks and the Comintern. We shouldn't forget that because the Bolsheviks thought that they were the expression of world history, the unfolding of world history, their international organization, the Third International, the Comintern, very powerful organization, as it were, um, uh, monopolized the revolutionary option. And there were many other revolutionaries, anarchists, anarcho-syndicalists, revolutionary socialists who weren't Bolsheviks, who found themselves disenchanted, frozen out, um, marginalized. And you really saw that during the Spanish Civil War in particular, in which the, the, the pro-Soviet communists were really a very, very small element. But in the end, the weight of the fact that you have a state that can claim it represents the world revolution and has the common turn gives it a determining role on the Republican side. Now, if you just wandered in, this is the History Iron Head School, and we're looking at the centenary of the, the Bolshevik Revolution. And if you have any questions, any points to make, you know, put your hand up, uh, participate in, in class. Uh, Frank, I want to go back to you, because at the very heart of um, Marxism is, is economics. And uh, the idea that, th that it operates according to certain laws and development, now, in a sense, then it seems to me that, that, that Marxists were the victims of their, of, of, of their own perception on this. In other words, because I want to go back to this thing on the market economy, which you've already talked about, right? I mean, why do you believe a planned economy can't deliver economic growth? Okay, le let, me, let me push that back for a moment, because I want to say something about a phrase here that's been used, and it's quite a colorful a uh, magical sort of phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat. And a lot of people, when, you know, when we were young, believed, you know, believed in this kind of phrase and this kind of idea. No dictatorship anywhere in the world is a pleasant place to live. Now, no matter who thinks they're running the dictator, you know, Plato's philosopher king sounds great. The point is, who chooses that philosopher king? So any dictatorship is a not a pleasant place to be, and the people who get wiped out under any dictatorship are the free thinkers. So I guarantee you, half the people or more in this room would be the people who'd be wiped out under any dictatorship. Think of it at the moment. Donald Trump got elected president of the US. He thought this gave him power to run the US. And unfortunately, he ran into the concept of the separation of powers, which is at the heart of every democracy. You know that nobody has all power in any state. There's different competing centers of power, all battling for power and influence. And 
that's the magic way, of, that's, that's the great way about, uh, about how liberal democracies work, is that nobody has the right to dictate everything. There are other centers of power, and a constant debate goes on, and it's only through debate that new ideas and good ideas percolate to the top. So I'm in favor of you know, freer societies, societies where debate is free, and sure, you can say, okay, the media in the Western world you know, is dominated by rich oligarchs and so on. I mean, it's not so true, though. You know, state televisions everywhere. Think of RTE. You guys, probably most of us think of RTE as a very bourgeois sort of, sort of a TV network. It's populated, and Tommy will know this as well. All, all the journalists I know in RTE were the radical lefties when I was a, an undergrad in, in UCD, and I'm sure it's the same when Tommy was an undergrad in Trinity. So state media, you know, are vying for power against privately owned media. And sure, it's not an ideal situation, but as I think it was Churchill who said, you know, democracy is a crap system except for every other one that's been tried. Now, to return to that issue, so market economies are, you know, part and parcel of liberal democracies. The way the Soviet Union worked, and I'm old enough to remember this, and in fact, you know, visited East Germany and so on when it, when it was still, um, you know, within the Soviet, Soviet bloc. The way, the way they worked is, you know, a centralized economy, so you have bureaucrats deciding how much is going to be produced, how many shoes, how many millions of pairs of shoes are going to be produced each year, and they set the price at which those, those shoes are going to be sold. And that is an impossible task to get right. So either they set the price too high, in which case there are stocks that are not purchased and they're left to go to waste and rot in storerooms or generally the price is set too low believing that it's fair you know that necessities should be distributed at low prices and then what happens is if the price is too low there's excess demand so there's queues and there's rationing and there's black markets so command economies don't work and we would know from the era of the soviet union you know that you read about it often enough that people would join, they'd see a queue outside the shop and they'd join it, not even knowing what the queue was for because goods were in such short supply. And then if you were at the end of the queue, the stocks would have been purchased by the people at, 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 at the uh, early on in the queue and then they would appear on the black market the next day. So that's a market economy functioning, but it's a very inefficient way for a market economy to function. So command economies don't, don't work. Yeah, but Frank, sort of there are many people today who can't afford to buy the shoes that are in the shops, right? You know, that there, there are limits to, to the, what the, the free market will deliver. Absolutely, and and yeah. one of the, the biggest ones, because you're, you're just going back to your, 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 uh, what you're extolling the virtues of democracy, the problem now is that the disparity between wealth and poverty is getting worse. I mean, the concentration of wealth in fewer and fewer of hands. And these people can buy power. They can buy media influence. Yeah. I mean, there's examples of it. I won't mention a particular tent across the way because I work for them sometimes. Uh, you know. Yeah. where one guy controls a huge section of the media, now, will let be murdered let, or whatever? Let, let me tell you on a global scale that is absolutely wrong. We've seen the exact opposite happen since the 1970s. Because China and India are the most populous nations in the world, and they were very poor back in the 1970s, and they've grown very rapidly. So in fact, global inequality has declined in the last 50 years. Now, inequality in the kind of societies that we're familiar with has risen, so Ireland and Britain and America and so on. 
on. But at the global level, that's not true. And it's the return to the market economy on the part of China and India. And increasingly in the last 20 years, sub-Saharan Africa as well, that's moved towards a market economy, that they've caught up on richer nations. Now, very slowly in the case of Africa, very rapidly in the case of China. But it's just not true to say that global inequality has risen in the last 50 years. It has declined because the most populous nations in the world have grown more, more rapidly and pulled you know, a billion people out of, you know, dollar a day poverty, as we call it. That's the most extreme sort of poverty. Have been Oliver. out of poverty. I, well, I noticed, Tommy, when I was visiting that stall you just referred to, that um, today checks are going out to refund those who have paid their water charges. And I think that anybody who is involved in that struggle might have some, uh, might it might speak to them, the sort of standard Marxist notion that, um, the state is merely a series of apparatuses and mechanisms that exist for the protection of the bourgeoisie and for private interests. Um, and I think that if we're trying to define uh, the dictatorship of the proletariat um, in, in the sense that Frank's talking about, uh, there can be obvious confusion because of the word dictatorship. Um, but as Lenin saw it, the dictatorship of the proletariat is really just the proletariat seizing control of those mechanisms that already exist for the proletariat suppression and for the, uh, for the fomentation of bourgeois private interests and redirecting those coercive mechanisms towards, towards the bourgeoisie themselves, not as individuals, but as a class. Um, so Lenin would say that right now we are living in a democratic dictatorship where there is one class that has this uh, hegemony over the, the state repressive um, apparatuses and that it's, it's really just a, a redirection um, of, those, of those coercive mechanisms that, uh, that constitutes what you might call the dictatorship of the proletariat alongside um, not centralization, but mass decentralization and the concentration of power in lots of local centers um, of Soviets. Um, and now, obviously, as we know, that didn't pan out in the Soviet Union, but i just like to make the point that uh, if you read Lenin's writings up until October 1917, that is the program and that is the platform on which the Bolsheviks gained popularity. Brian, do you want to come in just very quick? Well, I mean, very, very briefly, Churchill did say democracy was the best system so much in Britain. In Italy, he had a different opinion, because, as he said, if it, Mussolini was needed to stop fascism there, than or to stop communism there, then you had Mussolini. In India, he had a very different appreciation of democracy as well. And I think when we discuss these concepts, the key thing about 1917, 1918, and we have to go back to the actual times themselves, is that when people heard the term dictatorship of the proletariat in Waterford, they didn't think of a bureaucrat who was now going to take over and tell them what they do. They thought this meant that they were in charge, that the Soviets, that the workers' councils, the idea that every working class person knows more about running their lives than the owner of the enterprise they work for. And that was a very powerful idea. And it's an idea that still has resonance. Because look, we're in 21st century liberal democratic Ireland. February 1918, Thomas Johnson's writing about how if the Bolsheviks came to Ireland, the Dublin housing problem would be immediately tackled um, and might be made less, Amen to that. less pressing by the distribution of the congested population from the tenements over the partially occupied mansions of the suburbs. We're in an Ireland in which three people died over the last weekend because of homelessness. Now, if that doesn't mean there still isn't a need to challenge the idea that the market is the best way we can do things, then I think nothing does. John, do you want to come in very quickly? Because I, I have somebody in the audience. Yeah, I'll get to you next yeah, time. Just, just extremely rapidly, but I, thinking about it in advance, I kind of figured that this debate would end up in a, in a sort of uh, 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 the opposition between 
recycled Bolshevik ideas and neoliberal uh, capitalism. And I just think that that's far too stark a picture for where we are. I think that when people use the phrase, when theorists use the phrase, dictatorship of the proletariat at the turn of the century, their idea was that by the world historical process, the, the proletariat workers waged workers would be the vast majority of society. And therefore, it, it would be a dictatorship only for the tiny minority not composed of those people. And we know that that's not how things turned out. So one of the difficulties with the language of Marxism, and particularly of Leninism, was that it was a kind of sociological language. If you were on the right, in the right class, it worked. If you weren't, you were consigned to the dustbin of history. I think fascism was worse because fascism had a biological metaphor, not a sociological one. If you were the wrong race, then you were consigned to the dustbin of history. But I think there's no alternative but to some notion of hu humankind which is based on universal human rights. Having said that, it seems to me Frank is clearly right that capitalism, market capitalism, has lifted hundreds of millions of people across the world out of poverty. But it's also produced extreme inequalities and showed itself very bad at managing the, the technological processes of the new industrial revolution, the IT revolution that we're now in. And therefore, I think we can look back to the past to, to all of those legacies of democratic socialism, of, of, of all sorts of alternatives, which show us why a combination of the market and the state, including for water, including for housing, is the way to go. Neither total state control nor the total free market are capable of addressing our needs. And get in the, yeah. Uh, it's a question for the panel. How important is literature to spreading the ideas of the revolution? And I'm talking about emancipatory ideals, ideas around equality, and particularly uh, the, the role of women in including women in the revolution. Uh, and a little bit to, to Brian about the relationship between James Connolly and Markovich. And was that important? Do you want to take that one as a literary question? Well, sort um, of. I'm, a, about, I'm not sure about specifically the role of women, but of course, what is to be done, which is the text that really cemented the Bolsheviks' position as the Bolsheviks, yeah. which means majority, um, the majority party. That name was taken from a book by Chernichevsky, What is to be done, a, a novel. Um, and uh, then right after the revolution, you had the proliferation of various uh, radical literary organizations. Um, you had Prolet Cult, which was a, a, a collective of artists and writers um, which tried to meet the, the vanguard with an avant-garde, um, which tried to sort of act as the artistic wing of the revolution. And curiously enough, I mean, contrary to this notion of the Bolsheviks as a sort of totalitarian centralized dictatorship, the Bolsheviks at that point were concerned with making sure that prolet cult and the artists and writers who were actually on their side um, did not gain a, a monopoly over, you know, the over state literature, over the the literature of the revolution. Um, the Bolsheviks at that point were funding established bourgeois art institutions, um, established bourgeois publishing houses, um, which at the height of the Civil War during a national paper shortage um, produced hundreds and hundreds of uh, world literature um, and uh, copies of world literature and distributed them free of charge to workers. Um, they were concerned with, with maintaining this diversity in the arts whereby neither the old sort of Tolstoyan tradition nor the new uh, radical you know, Mayakovskyan uh, tradition would be, would, would gain a kind of um, monopoly. 
Now listen, I'm going to have to wrap it up here, guys. Uh, this is typical. It's like a good sing-song, you know, everybody wants to get in at the end. Um, now, speaking of which, uh, yesterday, of course, we had our discussion on, on um, punk rock, 40th anniversary. And uh, one of the great things about it, everyone liked it, we played a few musical clips. And of course, I, I forgot to record any music for this particular uh, session. But John Horn has uh, volunteered to give us a, a few bars of the Internationale in French. Stand up, John. Stand up, one. So I, I should say, was volunteered. Democratic centralism at work here. <laughs> Can I also, just before we conclude, say that there is, and we shouldn't forget it, one surviving um, uh, 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 Leninist regime still in the world, which is North Korea, exactly exemplifies what Frank was saying, is presiding over um, a famine, and yet this morning seems to have weaponized an H-bomb. Uh, and so it may soon, that last remnant may consign all of us to the dustbin of history, if we aren't very careful. If democratic America doesn't first. Yeah, well, I say in partnership. <laughs> but just to remind us how the world was enchanted by the visions of socialism, including communism, and I only know it in French. Oh. The international the goes something like this. Debout les damnés de la terre. Please join in. Debout les forces de la fin. La raison tend dans son cratère, c'est la rupture de la fin du passé faisant table rase, tout le monde debout, debout, le monde va changer de base, nous ne sommes rien, soyons tous. C'est la lutte pénale, groupons-nous et demain, l'international sera le genre humain. So I'd just like to thank our speakers, uh, Brian Hanley. Uh, Oliver Eagleton, Frank Barry, and the, the one and only uh, John Horn. That, that was brilliant, John. Uh, see you all back here next year.